Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This is a crowd podcast. Boxing made me be able to forgive myself for what I did. No more football. I'm going to become a professional boxer. Some doors for someone with my personality should never be opened. <laughs> Keep them closed. You put a bet on yourself to win the British title. You know, you put two and two together and you start to think, I'm maybe drinking too much here. Let's get on with it. I'm George. He's Deck. Hello. It's the George Groves Boxing Club. Hello, Deck. Hello, George. How are you? Joe, I've started calling you Declan, and I've started calling you Declan not to your face, so I'll be at home and I'll say Declan, and then the missus pulled me the other day and went, why are you calling him Declan? I was like, I don't know, I'm just freshening it up. He's like, well, is that like almost like, is that okay with him? I was like, <laughs> and then I panicked, and I was like, I don't know. I'll go back to Deck. Yeah, the fact that it's unsettling you, I like that, so let's, uh, I'm just going to let that hang. It could be either. How are you performing today, George? Uh, weekend was great. Always is. Weekend was great, but I can't remember any of it but Sunday down the dale I got two club coaches two amateur club coaches which was Mick Delady still there in his 70s ducking and diving bobbing and weaving and then there was Peter Carson who emigrated to Clacton and he's 81 years of age still the hardest man in the gym he come down so it was a joy and a pleasure for me to be in the gym with two legends of the sport certainly legends of the amateur boxing scene and circuit and uh, just watching them two um, still pick holes in each other just is a is a joy to behold father-in-law arrived home last night so uh, what what does that mean Deck? barbecue it is an insecurity, Declan. You know, I, he is my father-in-law. I am the son-in-law. And obviously, I'm useless. Like, we are of that generation. You know, do I change lights? No. Can I, you know, change a plug socket? Absolutely not. Barbecue, out the way, son. But now, I've done lessons, mate. I'm there straight away. He didn't want his steak to the, you know, to chef's chef's order. You know, it had to be to uh, cook right the way through. 
but no complaints in the eighth a lot which i was was amazing mate how was your weekend you know i'm just having one of those moments now i can't remember a single second of the weekend any boxing do you watch any amateur boxing there was some boxing this weekend george those of us lucky enough to tune into the high performance podcast on friday would have heard some boxing chat with you got to go on there and prattle on about my little story winning the world title with a fourth attempt do you know what's mad is when i was listening to it like because i was covering it for you every like every world title when it came it was just coming up and you were obviously amongst the big bustling scene in Britain at the time. I never really realised it was the fourth attempt and that was such a big thing. Yeah, but wasn't a bad old thing to finally win one at the fourth attempt. So at the weekend, so there wasn't, we didn't do a, a like a review and a preview this week, but there was some boxing on Saturday, a big matchroom card, the matchroom debut of Edgar Belanga, who took on Jason Quigley and won in New York. Quigley boxed really well in defeat. One of the best performances of his career, I thought, and Belanga goes on and maybe he'll get, you know, maybe he'll fight John Ryder next. I'd love to see that. But the reason I'm talking about this is because in Jason Quigley's corner was none other than Andy Lee. Now, we had a tweet from the pug himself, from Sweet Pug, earlier this month, and he said, why are you not getting Andy Lee? And he'd be such a good guest. Do you want to explain, George, do you want to make the confession or shall I? Um, we have actually recorded with Andy Lee. We have, and it was so good. Uh, yeah, Andy <laughs> Lee is a, a friend a friend of ours, friend of mine, friend of yours, Declan, friend of the show, um, an all-round lovely guy and is well up for a bit of bit of podcasting. But we had to do a remote one because he was up in Morecambe training Tyson Fury at the time and the many others. Who are his other pros at the moment, Declan? Joseph Park was up there at that point. For, it was for He was up in camp with Joe at that point, I think, but in Morecambe, yeah. And Joe Jason Quigley's there, Paddy Donovan's there. Apologies if I've missed anyone, but yeah, you know, it's a good, it's a good busy gym he's got. Andy is excelling in his work now as a trainer, um, as well as a very busy broadcaster uh, on his own. We managed to squeeze him away from both them jobs for like an hour and a half. And then one of us, I don't know if it was me or you, it was probably producer Ross, forgot to press record. We want to get Andy back on, so we don't want to like throw his Wi-Fi under the bus. We're hoping that he's still a lovely guy and that he will be up for coming on again. And the second show is always better than the first, Declan, so he'll be even better next time. Didn't go well, that one, but we'll get him in. We'll get him in. One person we did have in was Maurizio Suleiman, George. Gareth Robertson got in touch and he said, WBC Maurizio Suleiman episode was great. What a humble guy. I agree. The WBC do their thing well. They seem to be at the forefront and, of course, have the two big guns as champions in Canelo and Fury. Yes, very good point. Well put, Gareth Robertson. I'm glad you enjoyed that episode. We enjoyed uh, recording it, didn't we? Considering, like, of course, he wants the WBC to be popular. It's essentially why he's sometimes out and about doing a lot of media, promoting the WBC. But he was very kind to, to be, have honest and frank conversations with us uh, for our podcast. And um, fascinating listen, you know, really fascinating listen. I'm going to give a shout out to Declan, to Thomas Sullivan, who contacted me on my Instagram. Your podcast makes my day in work that bit better. Also, uh, he likes how me and Carl are cool now. Well done, Tom. Yeah. Thomas. Callum Jones got in touch on the subject of the WBC. He said, hi guys, do you envision the relatively newish weight class of bridger weight becoming well-established to the extent of other weight classes such as heavyweight and cruiserweight? When do you think is a realistic time frame to reach, for it to reach that level? And what do you think needs to be done to get it to that level? All the best, Callum Jones. The WBC are the only ones who recognise uh, bridger weight, isn't it? And anyone doesn't know that's the, the weight class that they stuck in between cruiserweight and heavyweight, which makes a lot of sense because if you're anything over 200 pounds you're a heavyweight that could be 201 pounds 
or 400 pounds. So there's nothing there's nothing in between. So it does make sense, the bridge weight division, but at the moment it's kind of lightly regarded, isn't it? And only, if only one sanctioning body had got a champion there, it's kind of not really taken off yet, has it? So problems it might face is that the big names, are they going to want to go in there? Because if they're big names and they're really good, they'll go straight up to heavyweight. They'll give away the natural size like, a, like an Usyk. And it might even sort of make a Chris Billum Smith who... Sort of, I'm sure he has to boil himself down a little bit into the cruiserweight limit, but if he steps up to heavyweight, it will be for the right time and right place. He's never going to outgrow that division. So adding a adding a bridge of weight will be tough for him. How open will we? If you literally to be a heavyweight, you have to be over 200 pounds. And bridge of weight is it 220? What weight are they coming in at? 224. 224. So that's a that's a lot of weight to think to yourself. I've got to get over 224. To um to make heavyweight, I think it's a good idea ultimately, Declan, because there are guys out there who are just marginally too big for the cruiserweight division, but probably want to win a world title. I do think for a long time it's going to be seen as that stepping stone because the money's going to be at cruiserweight or it's going to be at heavyweight. So someone like Chris Billum Smith will go, well, I might as well just dominate a cruiserweight or try and unify as opposed to just jumping up and boxing whoever is there at bridgeweight at the time. Speaking of bridges, George, consider this the bridge into today's episode. <laughs> That's awful. Do you know why, George? Because this man has excelled in two sports and essentially had two careers. So why not make this a two-pod special? This is exciting. This is going to be a cracker. This is, of course, Curtis Woodhouse. This will be part one. And if you like this, make sure you listen to part two. Love it. Let's get going, Deck. Today, we have our very first footballer slash professional boxer in the club, Declan. We do, George. A midfielder, a manager, and a light welterweight champion is Curtis Woodhouse. Curtis, (sighs) welcome to the show, pal. Thanks for joining the club. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Great to be here. You've been one of the ones in terms of like podcasts and stories. Your story's amazing, as we're going to get into. The problem we've got is a time constraint because there's so much to go at here. We've got like two lives, two professions to try and condense into one. We're going to do our best, don't we, George? And we try and think of like a theme, but really I think you're a theme in itself. That, That footballer to boxer and the achievement that you did in both. There's been other ones, but nobody's done what you've done. The the England honours and then the British title. Now the dust has settled on the career and everything's in the past. How do you kind of reflect on it? Is it like it never happened? Or Yeah, it's crazy really. And, and you know, I don't mean this in an arrogant way. I, I don't think that um, I really get the credit for the levels that I've achieved at. I, I think it's one of them, once I'm dead, they'll probably look back and think, <laughs> oh my God, that, yeah. was, that was pretty good. Uh, it's like everything went, while he's still kind of here and around, you don't people don't really look at how it should be looked at. And I just think it was something that I don't think will ever, ever be done again. I underestimated how hard it was going to be to become a professional fighter. And I had such a comfortable life. I remember saying to my dad when I was going to retire from um, football, my dad said to me, I'll never forget this, he said, son, he said, you go out and try and earn £500 out in the real world. He says, you'll be up at seven in the morning and you'll be home for seven at night. He said, don't underestimate how cushy your life is. And I was young and ballsy. I was like, whatever, dad. And I look back now and think, God, you know, boxing boxing has given me an, an incredible life. You know, whenever my name comes up, like you guys said, Curtis Woodhouse, former British champion, that follows me everywhere. But boxing, you know, took me to the brink of like, 
losing everything financially and everything. It put me in a really difficult predicament. You know where people say, how much do you really want it? Well, once you get put in certain situations, you find out how much you actually really want it. And, you know, are you playing at it or not? And I was willing to, willing to risk absolutely everything to chase a dream that no one really cares about apart from myself. <laughs> you know, and, and, that, and that's, the, that's the truth. No one, ultimately, outside of my little bubble and my little mind, no one really cares if you become the British champion or not, but it meant everything to me. And, uh, you know, I, um, I walked out, I talked to it and I, and I, I gave everything. Just paint this picture for us, Curtis, <laughs> right? Because, I mean, I was boxing from the get-go, boxing, boxing, boxing. But there's loads of boxers out there and pretty much everyone else I ever knew as a kid. It was just football, mm. football. There was so many, in my eyes, these these amazing footballers, but they were rubbish because none of them could ever make <laughs> it, you know? You're beyond that. Like, you're a professional footballer and you're excelling. Listen, look, all it ever was for me as a young kid was football, football, football. That's all I ever wanted to be. I, boxing never even, didn't even cross my mind to be a professional fighter ever I was football mad um, I was born in 1980 so I, I, was, I was a young kid born in uh, in Yorkshire my hero was John Barnes growing up I supported Liverpool I was a glory sport Liverpool were the best at winning everything so I supported them and John John Barnes was my hero he had a left he was left footed I'm left footed he had a little afro I had a little afro you know and John Barnes was the guy who I looked up to and all I ever wanted to do when I grew up was to play for Liverpool play for England score the winner in the FA Cup final. I used to envisage when we were playing, we used to call it Wembley. I don't know what you yeah. guys call it here. When I was playing Wembley in my head all the time, it was Woodhouse, Woodhouse. And I'd always score the winning goal for England in the World Cup final. And that's all I ever wanted to be. And that's why with the way my football career ended, it was hard to, for, for, for someone who loved football so much to get to a point where I hated it so much. I was always the best on my estate. I'm two or three years younger than everybody on my estate. So I was, I was the youngest, but I was all football was my time where you can call me anything you want, but during this hour of us playing football, I'm the governor. What, what sort of year was that? And what was the like system like in terms of selecting good kids to then become professional or get you know into the system of becoming a professional footballer yeah so I first started playing for my first team when I was 10 I used, okay. to, play, I used to play for Bridlington Rangers and a lad in my team was called Lee Morris and Lee Morris's dad was a guy called Colin Morris who used to play for Sheffield United I went to Sheffield United's 125th anniversary a few years back and Colin got into the the top 100 players to ever play for Sheffield United. Colin was in, I went in. I must yeah, I was going to say you in there. I must have been 101. I didn't, I didn't quite <laughs> make it. <laughs> but Colin was in there and Colin was a great guy, a winger. They used to call him Cocky Colin Morris. And he's a great player and he was my best, Lee was my best friend at school and it was his dad. Colin um, basically rang Sheffield United up and said, my son and his best mate are really good footballers. Can they come and have a trial at Sheffield United? It wasn't like it is now. You look at the kids in the academy now, they're in four or five times a week, aren't they? But there used to be a rule where you weren't allowed to travel over an hour to get to the club that you're at. Sheffield from us is about an hour and a half. So we used to go down on like bank holidays, Easter holidays, and we just used to have weekends down there. They used to put us up in digs. The first club I went to was York City. So I was there for a year at their centre of excellence. I used to train there on a Tuesday night. But you could go to various clubs at the time. I was going to Sheffield United as well. And it got to the, the, the time where I had to sign schoolboy forms. And because I was registered with York City, Sheffield United actually bought me at 12 years of age for £26,000 to sign for them at 12. So that was when I first signed school. 12-year-old, 26 Twi grand. Yeah, yeah. What was that like? <laughs> what was what was that just everyone, was everyone super excited? Obviously, you're not going to see, you don't see any of that money, but like... Is your dad super proud? Yeah. Like, is your mum's telling everyone on the, you know, in the in the hairdressers or wherever? Oh, surreal, really. I suppose. Yeah, you know, when you're young, though, you take it all in your stride, mm. don't you? It's not until you get older and you look back and you think, 
Bloody hell, that was quite good. Again, I was always kind of the, the, the best in around my estate, but from a small place. But then once you start going and playing for your county and say it used to be East Riding against Manchester boys or whatever, I'd be like, yeah, I think I'm the best player on this pitch as well. And then you go around and I've always, not arrogance, I suppose it's confidence, I suppose, at a young age. And I always had it. Do you think that confidence you had was unique to you amongst the other kids? Or do you think other kids had that? I'm trying to relate it to boxing because sometimes in boxing there's kids 12, 13, 14, 15, who have that confidence and some that don't. And then you just wonder which ones make it, which ones don't. But obviously there's a team sport, an individual sport. So mm. there's that big difference there. I think being on the estate that I was on and being the youngest probably helped. My peers were always older. So if I was competing against them and, and, and doing well, it always gave me that confidence. When you're hanging around people that are older than you, you kind of have that more confidence of being around older people. And I think that just kind of maybe followed me. And even though I, did, I left school with no GCSEs, I've always been quite a smart person. And I just knew instantly that I'm I'm good at this. When you got into first team football then and you were playing, how did that feel? So me and Lee Morris, who went through from 12... We're not even from Sheffield. So Lee's from a place called Killam, which is like a little village five miles away from, I'm from Driffield, the town. So we rock up to Sheffield when we sign our apprenticeship, at, uh, which is, uh, we're on £42.50 a week. And that was from 16 to 18. You do like a two year, they used to call them YTSs. And me and Lee were the only two people that got kept on out of a squad of, say, 30. Everyone else got released. Since that day, a bloody hell, what were we, 30 years ago, nobody from our area has ever come through and played at the level that we've played for. And you had two, literally, best mates at school that came through together. Um, I made my debut first be before Lee, which I remind him about all the time. <laughs> and yeah, I was on the bench. I remember Nigel Spackman was the manager and he called me on the Friday and he said to me, is your, is your dad coming to the game tomorrow? And I was like, uh, my dad comes to every game, like youth team games, didn't miss a game. And it was like the first team game. And I was like, no, I doubt it. He says, well, tell him to come tomorrow because you're in the squad with us. You know, when you when I say about arrogance and confidence, all of a sudden you, you become really, really nervous. And I, and I rang my dad up and said, dad, I'm in the first team squad tomorrow. And the, the, the manager said to come to the game. So I think I might be playing. I thought I was going to be starting. Um, and I wasn't. I was on the bench. <laughs> and then after 75 minutes, I'm like sat there. I remember it now. I remember it to this day. I was sat there. I was sat next to Bobby Ford. Um, Nigel Spackman turned around and uh, they used to call me Wiggy back then because I had a big afro and said, Wiggy, get warmed up, you're coming on. And all of a sudden that arrogance and confidence <laughs> you know, quick, quickly left me. <laughs> and I, I did a little warm up and the fans were going mad because at that time nobody had come through the Sheffield United youth system for maybe 15 years. Yeah. So then they've got one of their own who's come through from 12 and, and I came on and it was... It was amazing. To now, everyone always asks me, what's your greatest ever moment in football? And it's that. It was making my debut because it was that. That's a moment where it's no longer a dream. I'm actually a professional footballer. Yeah, you're living I've it. made it. I've mm. done it. I came on. My dad was in the crowd. It was just brilliant. It was the best 15 minutes of my life. I can't remember anything about the game. It, it all went too quick. But I just remember coming off thinking, yeah, this is a start. At what point did football start to sour for you? Well, something that, that came into my life, which I really, really struggled with, was money. Still only 17 at this point, and um, it blew my mind. I remember ringing the club up at one point, like nearly in tears, saying, I think my, my account's been hacked. I said, what do you mean? I said, like, uh, every month people are stealing money out of my account. So they rang the police up. So they went through it all, and they were, like, looking at me like I was an alien. It's like, what are you on about? I'm like, I don't know what, what all this is. And they said, they're your direct debits, Curtis. I was like, what's a direct debit? I said, that's your mortgage there, your phone bill, this, that, and the other. I didn't have a clue what a direct debit was. And what I've found out about money is money opens a lot of doors for you. Some doors for someone with my personality should never be opened. <laughs> Keep them closed. And all of a sudden, I was out. 
and I was partying. You know, I've never been one of them as a young kid that used to get all the girls. That that wasn't me. I was never that good looking guy. All of a sudden, when you earn a lot of money and you're a footballer, you become really, really good looking. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so whenever I'd be going out, girls would be coming up to me like, are you Curtis Woodhouse? I was like, absolutely, I am. And, uh, you better believe it. <laughs> yeah. And I got, I got a real taste for being somebody, shall we say. And I got high on enjoying the perks of being a footballer were. And it took my eye off the ball. And my game was always about pace, power, energy. I could get around the pitch. I'd tackle all day. I could pass it. After a bit, I'm like looking down, getting a bit of a belly on me here because I wasn't living the right life. And money kind of got in the way. And not ashamed to say it, I just lost my way. I lost my uh, dedication. I lost my drive. I lost my hunger. Took my eye off the ball. And I probably celebrated my success before I'd even really been successful. Does that make sense? And then over time, my game deteriorated and I didn't really have anybody to fall back on. Not saying that I'm not blaming anyone else, you know, I take full responsibility for my actions, but I never really had anyone that had pulled me aside or to even kind of lean on and say, listen, I'm struggling a bit here to stay in just one day a week. You know, I just couldn't dedicate myself to anything anymore. Really? It was that, it was that bad? Yeah, I completely lost my way. Yeah. Totally, yeah. So probably my, my best years of football are probably my, my first two seasons from mm. 17 to 19, really. They were my peak years. Mm. And then after that, I think I went to Birmingham City. They paid like a million pounds for me, which sounds great on paper. But 12 months before that, Glasgow Rangers had bid four million pounds for me that the club had turned down. There was loads of clubs watching me at the time. Liverpool were watching me. There was loads. Then go for one million pounds to another team in the championship. Although, like I said, on paper, it looks great. It was nowhere where I should have been. So if you ask any manager that's ever managed me, a lot of them have, have said the same thing, that I was unmanageable. Uh, that is true. I was un unmanageable. But I think part of that is part of my upbringing, really. So my mum and dad split up when I was 14. My mum moved away with my brother and sister. So I, there was me and my dad. And my dad used to work away in London, Monday to Friday, come back on a weekend. I uh, used to work on the doors on the weekend. So from Monday to Friday, I was in, my, in the house kind of looking after myself. I don't take direction very well. I'm very independent always in what I'm doing. Like when I said I'm going to become a boxer, everyone's like, you can't. I'm like, well, fucking you just watch. I'll do what I want to do. And I've always been like, I'm bullheaded, I'm pig-headed. I can be very bloody-minded in my decisions that I make. So my dad kind of knew, knew that. And my dad wasn't going to start telling me what I can and can't do. And ultimately, that ended up being my downfall. It got you in some scrapes as well. And like, it, you know, you document this in the book. And if, mm. if, if anyone hasn't read it, Box to Box, great name, first of all. Yeah. But such a good book. Go and read it. But some run-ins with the law mm. is that Loads. as a result of that personality you think that was the that authority thing where it's just like i don't i don't need these people telling me what to do or, or were you just in a in a place where you were kind of unruly yeah I, I was I'm combative you yeah. know you know a young age as a player as well yeah yeah <laughs> but even at a young age you know i was always taught to deal with things with your fists even though at a young age that kind of maybe got me through that young period of mine I'd fight at the drop of the hat. I always say, you know, if there's any ever trouble, my heart rate doesn't go up like 1% at all. I've got better, not perfect. And again, every time I've been arrested, I've never been sober, ever, not once. You know, you put them two and two together and you start to think, I'm maybe drinking too much here. What was the point, Curtis, where you said, no more football, I'm going to become a professional boxer? It was when I was at Peterborough United. So I went to Birmingham City. Like I said, they paid a million pounds for me. We got promoted to the Premier League. Again, it all looks great on paper. But I got sacked from Birmingham City and um, I went on a 44-day bender. I just disappeared for 44 days and I was out partying. Steve Bruce was ringing me and like, where are you? And, and when I look back now, I can look back now as a 43-year-old that looks back and I think, I think what I was doing, I was so annoyed with how my life had turned out. How can someone who's going to be playing for Liverpool 
England scoring the winner in the World Cup final, like I was telling you about. These were my dreams and aspirations. How can it go from being so good at 18, 19 to be so bad at 20? And I think I was just angry. I was angry at myself. And I think self-destruct's a great word. I was like, right, okay, I'm fucking going to go out in a blaze of glory. And I was earning ridiculous amounts of money as well. So I didn't play football for about six months and decided then I was going to retire. Not to box. At this point, boxing wasn't even on the radar, but I just knew I can't do this anymore because I suppose it's if, if I say to you, you're going to make a comeback now, you're going to maybe box for an area title. You have been a former world champion. To drop down to that level, you'd be like, how can I motivate myself for that? So all of a sudden, I'm going to be in my head playing for Liverpool, England. You know, when I've been at England, I've played with Frank Lampard, Stephen Gerrard, Jamie Carragher, some of the like top John Terry. And being able to hold my own in that environment to now getting sacked from Birmingham City, I, I realised then I, I can't, if I'm not going to be able to do this at the level I want to do it at, I'd rather not do it. And I, when I got sacked, I decided I'm going to retire. And then Barry Fry rang me. Whenever you're in a bad moment in your life, probably the last person you need to ring is Barry Fry. <laughs> so, so Baz rang me up and said, uh, listen, what are you going to do? Barry's the Birmingham City manager a few years before I went there. He started a relationship with Karen Brady and people like that that were on the board. So he knew that Birmingham City had sacked me. So he said, why don't you come and, and, and I appealed the sacking. So he rang me up and said, why, while your court case is going through, why don't you come and train with us? Try and find the love for it again and see where we go from there. So I said, yeah, no worries. So I went to go train with Peterborough. Got a little bit of a buzz back for it, to be honest, and, and ended up signing for Peterborough United. So were, that, they, were they championship at that point? They, they were in League, League One, one yeah, yeah. I believe, yeah. And that season I won the player of the year. Again, my dream was to play for Liverpool and England. And every club I'd been at, I'd, I'd caused mayhem. And I think I'd been arrested 26 times by the time I was 21. It wasn't really what I wanted to do. It was Peterborough United. And it was actually Barry Fry was the only person in my football career that actually did anything to try and help. Because I was always still able to compete as a player. I was nowhere near the player I was at, but I could still play football at a good level. But Barry actually rang Gary DeRue. So Gary DeRue is a former uh, British featherweight champion, lives in Peterborough. So Barry rang Gary Derup and said, I've got one of our players, Gaz. He said, we can't do anything with him, mate. He's a nightmare. He said, he just wants to fight all the time. He said, can, can he come and do some pads with you or something? Have you got a bag in your house he can come and hit? Because we're getting to the point where we're going to have to ban him from the training ground. Because every time he comes in, if it don't go his way, he'll just kick off. And I would. I'd just like wreck the whole session. Whenever the ball used to come on the pitch, I'd just boo it off the pitch. I'd just keep kicking it off the pitch so no one could play. You know, if we're not having it my way, no one's going to be able to play. So I went, I went and met Gaz. And again, in, in my eyes, these are boxers. So these are footballers. Because footballers are my peers. When all of a sudden Gary DeRue, British champion, I'm like, yes, sir. No, sir. <laughs> Three bags full, sir. And I used to go like twice a week, do a bit of bag work with him, do a bit of footwork. And I, I just loved it. I loved it. And I really looked up to Gary. And Gary was probably, without him even knowing, was a really positive role model for me. Someone who I probably needed at the time. Not sure how old Gaz was back then, but he was a lot older than me. So someone who I looked at as someone who, if Gary told me, hey, that's wrong, don't be doing that then I'd listen. These people to me were superheroes. I used to sit on the set here with my dad in the mid 80s, early 90s, watching your Benz, your Eubanks. And my dad always used to say to me when someone won the British title, he used to nudge me. I can remember him now nudging me on the set. He going, British champion, son. That must feel amazing. So it was always something that was held in high esteem in our house with professional fighters. So that was the first time I got introduced to boxing. I was, I'd have been 25 at that point. You feel like you were good at straight away. That was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> no. But you, I know you joke about it and you were off the page 
pace with the other professionals that you mixed with. But yeah. like early doors, were you, did you pick it up quickly? I had good hand-eye coordination. I could always punch a little bit, I had a little bit of power. But the, the thing that I had going for me was I had enthusiasm to do it. And uh, I said to Gary, like, when am I going to start sparring? And he was like, well, you know, <laughs> one step at a time. And I was going for like three months and he, he finally said, oh, I've, I've lined a bit of sparring up for you. So I'm like, brilliant, let's go. And uh, Gaz trained a few amateurs at the time. He said, be in the gym for five o'clock. I can't remember what day it was. <laughs> I came in, I'll never forget, it was so humbling. So I've walked in and these four or five lads came in with like school uniforms on, <laughs> fucking packed lunches in and all that lot. So I'm like, at this time I'm like 25, I'm a grown man. So I'm like, oh, Gaz, only kids like. Yeah. He's like, oh no. Let's play for Sheffield United. <laughs> yeah, he'll be like, oh, they'll be fine. <laughs> We're like getting 30 seconds into the first round. I've been pinged all over the place. We're thinking, holy shit. It was like an eye opener. These kids were like 12, 13, you know, and, and then all of a sudden I realized that this is hard. This is a different ball game to like just hitting the bags or the pads where you're not doing that. You used to have like 32, 32 punch combinations. Gaz used to do me. It's like, I was just to keep fitter. You used to call it the rock and roll. They used to call it. You used to like switch between Southpaw and Orthodox during the pad routine. And it was really cool. And I thought, yeah, I'm ready. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Bring them on. And then I got a little 12 year old Tommy coming in with his pack of lunch, pinging my head off. Didn't know how to parry a jab or anything. So that, but again, that really, really intrigued the, the sportsman in me, like, I need to get better at this. So instead of going twice a week, I was like, guys, listen, let's, let's, uh, you know, I finished training at half 12. I can be here for half one every day. Let's start picking it up. I can't have that. I can't have that happen to me. I can't go into my wife. I've got two kids at home saying, what's happened? Like little Tommy's just beat me up in the gym. I need to get better. So I started training regularly with Gary and started sparring a little bit more. And yeah, I wasn't very good, but I loved it. I enjoyed it. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In boxing, there's always that you're told as soon as you walk through the door, there's no 
party vibe. I remember uh, we used to call him Mickey Norfolk. He'd put your picture up on the wall at the gym at the Dale and then tell you that Naz used to go running on Christmas morning and that's why he's a world champion. And you had to live it like that. And he was like, okay, cool. Did that ever come into the conversations you was having when you started the boxing? It was like, you need to calm down on the party and now knock the drinking on the head. And then did you maybe move out of that, not caring so much in that self-destructive mode that had cropped up so many times in your football career? Well, at this point, I'd never, I wasn't even dreaming of being a boxer. I really needed that discipline in my life, really. And once I kind of turned over to start to take this seriously, and also as well, when I turned professional at 26, I'm all parted out. People always say to me, do you think if you'd have been, if you'd have started at 10, like you did at football, if you started boxing, do you think you'd have been a world champion? And I'd have been like, absolutely no chance. I'd have been a nightmare because I'd have still been doing the whole partying thing because I wasn't mature. When I look back now at my sporting career, I was very immature emotionally i didn't really have any coping mechanisms for any sort of setbacks when i got them as a professional athlete i just rebelled massively so i wasn't built to be successful as a young kid it wasn't until i got to a later age where i feel like i'm ready for this now i've matured i understand more about life i'm really ready to settle down i mean it's hard to say my football career was a failure because of what i did but it was a failure so whatever I'd have done up until that age, I would never have got the success I'd have got from 26 onwards in my boxing career. And I was nowhere near as good a boxer as was a footballer. Boxing made me be able to forgive myself for what I did. Like one of my proudest ever fights was the night I got knocked out against Dale Miles. It was a limiter for the British title. And that fight was in a horrendous fight. And if I'd have won that fight, I went, I'd have gone to fight Darren Hamilton for the British title. And Dale Miles was like awkward southpaw and he could punch. But I watched him on tape and I'm like, I can beat this kid. And he punched so hard. And the first round, he broke my nose. And the second round, I got a double fracture on my cheekbone. It's still now concaved in now. I remember sat on my stool at the end of the second round. And I thought that my eye was swollen. And it wasn't. It was my nose that was kind of under my eye and my cheekbone. And I was in so much pain. And every time he hit me, I can't explain the feeling. If When I'm touching my face, I felt like, God, is my face still on? Because it was like hanging and everything. He knocked me out in the sixth round. And I remember sat on my stool after, after the end of the second round thinking, I'm not sure I can go out for another round. And I went out and I fought my hardest and we were just trading shots. And after that fight, I sat there and I thought, I think I can do this, you know, because I got asked the ultimate question as a fighter and I passed. And I didn't know I was going to pass until you get put in that spot. But yeah, I answered questions of myself that night that, didn't really know the answer to until you get put there. And then and then you come back and you win the English title in the next in your next fight. In my next fight, and I think it was twelve weeks after that. Twelve weeks. I think so. It, or maybe even ten Is that weeks. Dave Rocky Ryan, the Derby Dark. Yeah, Dave Ryan. Yeah. Sandy Ryan's older brother. Yeah, and he's a hard he man. He really was. Mate, he yeah. was hard. And I'll never forget Dave Calder rang, rang me up and said, I've got a sh I've got a fight for you for the English title. I'm like, Dave, my face is killing me, mate. Uh, and I think they paid me four grand at that point for the fight. Or it might four or five grand, I think it was. I had no money. And I took the fights I needed the money, hardly did any sparring. My face was so tender. Like I said, I had a broken nose and a double fracture to my cheekbone. I'm sure it was 10 weeks or 12 weeks after, so probably wasn't properly healed, but I was in no position to turn down. Yeah, that was in the September and the Miles fight was in the June. I remember hardly ever sparred, just did pads, but I just needed the money. Hard managed Dave. Dave Ryan's probably my, the, the most physical man that I've ever fought. He was tough and I didn't make the weight too well that, that fight either. I remember really, really fading down the stretch in that. Maybe because I'd not been able to spar as well, so I'd not had a great build-up. But yeah, I might have beat him on a, on a split decision. 
you know, and I needed that five grand to pay for the, the, the mortgage, pay for bills. So it wasn't a case of, ideally, I'd have loved a, a few extra months to let myself heal, but I just wasn't in that position. Yeah, talk us through that, because you said right at the start that boxing took you to somewhere where you had nothing almost. You were near, and, and, and was that it just financially? Because people would assume high-level footballer, and like you say, with earning money when you were younger, but by that point, it was just kind of gone. And at that level as a boxer, you're not earning much, are you? People no. don't understand that. <laughs> no, peanuts. I mean, listen, at football, if I was earning 10 grand a week, I'd be spending 12. Really, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, boxing, I mean, I was fighting for way less than minimum wage. Way less, you know, I was earning peanuts. Um, I remember I won the International Masters title and I went to the pub the day after and I had it on my uh, lap. This guy came up to me in the pub and was like, oh, mate, congratulations, brilliant. I said, uh, how much did you get paid for that? I said, can I guess? I said, yeah, guess. And he said, 200. I said, 200 what? He said, 200 grand. And I said, mate, you are nowhere near. And he said to me, he said, why, you got more? He thought he meant I got more. I think I got paid 1,800 quid for the fight for like an eight-week camp. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so people's con perception of what fighters get paid, everyone sees Anthony Joshua, thinks that they're all earning that money. You know, the majority of us are nowhere near that. I, I boxed because I, it was something I wanted to do. I wanted to win the British title, and I'd have fought for the next 10 years to do it for free. It wasn't about money, and I was willing to sacrifice everything. So I was literally living from week to week beg steal borrow sponsorships pay this pay that just find my way and looking back at my boxing career boxing is the only thing i've ever dedicated myself towards i could go out six days a week and play in the championship and i know that sounds arrogant but you know i know i can do that because i fucking did it <laughs> you know i had enough natural ability to be able to play at a high level where boxing if i wasn't a hundred percent in boxing anybody could beat me on any given night whether you're ranked i mean 189th in great britain where i made my debut against dean mark antonio he was ranked 189th in great britain out of 190 and you know who 190th was it was me so it was literally the donkey derby and and i nearly lost that night you know i won by one point and i knocked him down twice in the last round which got me the win so if i wasn't 100 percent at boxing <laughs> literally anybody could beat me <laughs> you know and, and i've got no shame in saying that you know i remember um i remember dean powell uh, rang me up and said, we've got you someone for your debut. And I was like, yeah, let's go. I'm ready. He said, I've got you Dean Mark Antonio. And I said, fucking no chance. There's no way on my debut I am fighting a Mexican Dean. I'm like, I know boxing <laughs> and I've heard about you promoters. You're trying to tuck me up. I said, I'm not fighting a Mexican on my debut live on TV. It'll batter me. And he said, he's not a fucking Mexican. So he's a window cleaner from London. <laughs> he, said, he said, he's the, I hope you're not listening to this. <laughs> but he said, he's the fucking worst one we can find. He said, one of our kids boxed him the other week. He was terrible and he made him look like sugar ray leonard he said if you can't beat this kid he said we don't know what to do with you and he said go on box rec now and have a look at the boxing uh, border control rankings so i looked on there and he was 189th and i was 190th and we were literally the worst two and i remember coming out i came out to bob marley get up stand up and I'm thinking in my head, I'm thinking to myself, live on ITV against this kid who's terrible. I'm going to look the bollocks. <laughs> Coming out of the first round, bell went and he started like smacking me in the face. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Time, time <laughs> and I lost the first round. I lost the second round. I remember sat on my stool thinking like, this guy can't be the worst. <laughs> Tell me there's worse out there than this guy. And then like I said, I put him down twice in the last round and I won by a point. Even though to most people, boxers, it's like, yeah, you beat a kid 100 189th in Great Britain but for me I'm like that, that was hard work <laughs> them Mexican window <laughs> yeah especially ones in London yeah. Yeah. so that, that was 2006 was the debut the moment the big moment the British title win 
that was 2014. Yeah. So we're talking eight years of graft there. Yeah. Which is longer than you had as a professional footballer. Yeah. So people think you were a footballer and then did some boxing at the end. But in reality, boxing was the, your prime years, really. Yeah, 100%. And 2014 then. So tw let's go through that. So you'd beat Dave Ryan. You'd lost again to Shane Singleton, that right? I got robbed over there. I think Boxing News had me winning that round, that fight nine rounds to one. Oh. Yeah, and I was the English champion. I went over there to defend it. Um, yeah, Boxing News had me winning uh, nine rounds to one and the, the commentators of the fight had me winning eight rounds to two. So to lose that, I couldn't believe it. That made me move down to lightweight. One of the craziest decisions of my career, but I was desperate. You know, the, the first person to know that you're on the slide as a fighter, you know that person is you. I knew deep down I'm on the slider because I was struggling to make the weight 10 stone. Moved it to 10, I had a couple of fights at 10 7. I wasn't big enough. When I hit people at 10 stone, I could hurt them. When I hit them at 10 7, they're fucking hitting back. I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> the 10 7s were a bit too much for me. And I knew I was struggling to make the weight. And I knew I didn't have too much left in me. So when I lost my English title, so then it probably took me another 18 months to maybe rebuild. I'm like, I haven't got 18 months. I probably thought I've got a year left of this, being able to operate at this level. So I moved down to lightweight to get a crack at Derry Matthews, who was a Commonwealth champion. And I just couldn't make the weight. That fight was a disaster for me. Probably the best I've ever trained for a fight. I was in unbelievable condition till a week before the fight. And I started to take the weight off and I knew I was in trouble. The only time I've walked to the ring thinking, I'm in trouble here. If you've ever made weight, obviously George Willardon, there's a certain point where you can push to once you go over the edge you fucked i woke up the morning of the weigh-in at 10 6 which when i'm making 10 stone absolutely fine with nine nine you got not a problem i had to make nine nine and i got stuck at about nine twelve, and i was in the bath and every, and i was nearly fainting and as i was saying i, I, I can't i'm not gonna be able to do this it's three can't, pounds still yeah get from somewhere. yeah and, I'm, and I'm, so i've already taken off like nine, I've got another three to go. And they basically said to me, you don't make the weight, you ain't getting paid. And I knew Derry knew, because he said to me at the weigh-in, I looked terrible. I was walk, walking down the stairs, literally struggling to put one foot in front of the other. And he seen me at the weigh-in, he went, you're fucked, aren't you? <laughs> and I was like, trying my best to hide it, but I just looked awful. Yeah, and I lost that. And that's probably my only fight I look back at and think, I didn't give a true representation of myself. Other fights that I've lost, I've never not been able to give my all, but that night I was done. And I obviously thought after that, I'm going to struggle here to actually get a shot. The only reason I got a crack at the British title was because of Luke Campbell. So Luke Campbell won the Olympic gold medal. Eddie Hearn signed him. Luke Campbell's from Hull. I'm from Hull. So when Luke starts to fight locally, they need some people who sell tickets on the undercard. So Luke's first two or three fights, I boxed on his undercard. So I had my comeback Hull Ice Arena. I had like three fights at Hull Ice Arena. And then Matchroom signed Darren Hamilton, who's the British champion. And Darren had won the belt, defended it twice, and he needed to win it one more time outright to, to keep it outright. And they had a show coming up in Hull. So they're looking through the through the rankings. And I think you can fight anyone in the top 15. Is that right yeah. if you're the champ? I'm ranked 15th. You lost the Matthews fight, but then, you, yeah, you'd had two wins. Pucci, yeah. one of them. Yeah. And then Arik Malek. Yes. And that, so we're talking five months between getting knocked out by Derry Matthews or stopped by Derry Matthews in four rounds, within five months, you're fighting for the British title. Yeah. because And, th and this is why. Voluntary defence, Matt Trimmer just signed Darren Hamilton. 
They'd already arranged him to fight for the European title. After that, I've forgotten the guy's name who they arranged to fight. I know that's after I'd beat him. They're like, you've got a European title shot here if you want it. Dave Caldwell rang me up and said, are you sat down? <laughs> and I'm like... <laughs> Dave Caldwell, your manager and trainer. My, was my manager yeah. at the time. He wasn't training me at the time, but mm. it was my manager. Dave had been with me the whole way through. He says, mate, are you sat down? So I'm like, what's happened? He said, you're fucking not going to believe this. He said, I've just had Eddie Hearn on the phone. He said, uh, Darren Hamilton is fighting on Luke Campbell's next undercard. He wants to defend his British title they want to make a voluntary against you and I'm like you fucking joking me <laughs> and like yeah they, like, it, they fancy it I'm like mate 100% get me that fight so it was made and the fight was made at the Hull Ice Arena now a few years ago before this my dad had passed away so my dad had a, had a stroke and he died in, in the Hull Royal Infirmary which is probably 200 yards away from the Hull Ice Arena so you know when certain things in your life happen and you feel like everything's aligned. I've got no shame in saying this. Like if I boxed Aaron Hamilton a hundred times, like 99 times he'd beat me. He had that like a Corley vibe about him where it was really difficult to watch, but really he had some really good wins. He beat some good people because he was awkward and he was fit and he was tough. But I just knew that one night would be my night. Through everything that I'd been through in my life, it all was about this one night. And I just knew it was going to be my night. I just did. And I know it's easy saying that now after you come away and it is your night and you win. But I just knew it would take something special for, for someone to beat me that night. And uh, yeah, I was fortunate. You know, I owe lots of Luke Campbell. You know, if he hadn't won that Olympic gold medal, he wouldn't, Eddie Hearn's not coming to hold, is he? It was the proudest moment of my entire life. I say this to my wife all the time. She hates it. And we've got three kids. I've been married. I'm like, it was miles better than any of them occasions, love. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was amazing. It was a great night. And everyone, everyone I knew was there as well. Every time I looked out into the ring, I'd see a cousin, uh, an uncle or whatever. Everyone I felt ever, I, I'd ever met was at that fight that night. It was an incredible moment for and me. Another split as well. You love a split decision. Yeah. So that moment of being crowned the British champion for me was huge because no matter where I go now, Whenever my name comes up, Curtis Woodhouse, former British champion. And I got paid nine grand for that fight. I think I spent about 14 grand on my training camp. On the subject of money surrounding that fight. The story the is that you put a bet on yourself to win the British title. £5,000 at 50 to 1. At what stage did you back yourself? When I was playing for Peterborough United. Oh, that bookmaker must have been like, he's, he must be joking. He couldn't take my money quick enough. Yeah. <laughs> when you got beat by De Derry Matthews, you must have been like, sweet, I'm fine again. And it's yeah. like, shit, Luke, Luke Campbell's fault. He, yeah. Wow. It so, wasn't about the money though. No, but I mean, that's good payout still. Definitely helps. <laughs> right that's it deck so far that is the end of part one very nice stuff i think we need to get into the boxing a bit more don't you let's get into the boxing a bit more right part two's coming up now okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.